Welcome to this episode of the Atlantic Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Carlos Duralde, lead mobile game designer at Broadband TV. And I first met Carlos back when he lived in Atlanta, and we both worked together at Shop Visible. And uh, we both graduated from Georgia Tech, but what I really found most interesting about him was that he had already been developing video games as a side hobby. So definitely stood out with some of the candidates that we were looking at when we brought him into Shop Visible. But since that time, Carlos has relocated to Vancouver, British Columbia, and has kind of transformed his hobby into a full-time profession. So he was also gracious to uh, host my three kids when they visited Vancouver a couple years ago. So Carlos, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, not many people can claim to be a video game designer, so I definitely want to get into that, man. But uh, it's been a while since we talked. It's good to catch up with you. Um, but I really just kind of want to start off with uh, a little bit about your background and uh, where you're from. So kind of born and raised, you know, school, sure. um, school time and then going into your first job, what that looked like. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, my early years are a little bit strange. Um, we traveled around a bunch uh, when I was born because my parents were in the Air Force. So I was actually born in England. But then shortly after that, uh, we moved back to New Jersey. And then um, by the time I was about four, I'd say, uh, we'd already settled in Atlanta. And that's pretty much where I was raised and uh, spent the majority of my childhood and young adult years. Um, went to school in Atlanta. Uh, like you said, I went to Georgia Tech for my undergrad. Um, I studied computational media, which was kind of a new uh, degree at that point. That was back in 2008. Um, but it was, it was sort of an offshoot of computer science. So, you know, I, I had an interest in programming and I hadn't really dipped my toe heavily into programming in high school. Mm -hmm. um, but computational media felt like a good balance of mixing uh, design not just like digital design, but there was also some like product design mixed in there, mixing that with like programming and uh, yeah, just finding that middle ground. Gotcha. So kind of going back to your high school, I mean, did you kind of dabble in computers like most people did and um, yeah, I'm sure you played games, but was there um, thinking that you wanted to do programming even at that age as a living? You know, there actually wasn't. Um, I was always into tech. And obviously video games, I played a lot of them. And um, as someone who didn't grow up a lot around uh, video game consoles, I actually played most of my games on the computer. And so just spending most of your time on the computer, you, you just start to learn how tech works. Um, I did some shadowings in high school with uh, like an IT company. And they sort of were the first people who really showed me like, how computers were built and things like that. So that was really stimulating just from like a knowledge standpoint. But there was only one class that I took in high school that was at all related to programming. And I found it interesting, but we didn't really learn too much. Outside of that, I had a couple friends who were sort of self-teaching um, different programming languages in high school. But I didn't really understand back then um, all the applications of programming, and it hadn't really caught on. Like nowadays, they're, you know, they're saying that every child should learn how to program. 
Um, in, yeah. in 2006, 7, 8, no one was really saying that, at least uh, not that I remember. And so it was a bit of a gamble, I think, for me to to like invest my undergrad into a programming focused degree, but I knew that it was like a real profession, um, at least in some sense. And I, I knew that it was in line with, you know, people who like tech and things like that. So um, it, it was definitely an exploration. Gotcha. Now were your parents or siblings or were anybody else in your family involved in programming or coding or anything in the tech field? Um, not that I can remember. My older brother was also fairly knowledgeable about computers, but that was mostly just from like learned experience. Mm -hmm. um, but he didn't learn programming and both my parents uh, were in medicine. So they were about as far away from programming as yeah. you can get, I think. <laughs> um, and yeah, so really I didn't grow up in a, in a super techie family. Um, I did have friends. I think my friends were probably my biggest influence in terms of, you know, being more interested in programming. I, I did have a close friend in high school who was actually the one who convinced me to go to Georgia Tech in the first place. Um, oh, wow. They, I was sort of on a provisional or like probational uh, acceptance mm -hmm. where they wanted me to attend a summer school. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to go because I didn't want to lose my summer. <laughs> but, but Sounds like a typical uh, teenager. I've done exactly. the same thing. Yep, yep. Exactly. Um, <laughs> my friend forced me to go. Thank goodness. And yeah. then obviously I was accepted from there. Um, but, but yeah, it's funny because it really wasn't one of these things where like I was just following my passion. At yeah. 18 years old, I was still very much lost and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I think that's true for, for a lot of teenagers, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you just haven't been out or seen the world all you've, you know, you've lived in a couple of different places, but for the most part, growing up in Atlanta and really yeah. not seeing much outside of, of the city, you know, it's, it's hard to know what's out there. So right. I can definitely understand that. So you did mention uh, computational media and it being a fairly new major at the time, cause it wasn't there when I graduated. Right. So did you, um, did you start out in that major when you started at tech? And if you did, how did you kind of select that one? So funny story. Um, in line with me not being the most ambitious 18-year-old, um, I'm <laughs> fairly certain that my mom selected my major for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, she didn't do it at random. I know she was pretty aware of, of what my interests were, but I don't recall ever putting thought into what major I wanted to go into. She sort of suggested it and mm -hmm. I agreed that it sounded like a good fit. Yeah. Um, even though neither of us like truly knew what the major was going to be. I mean, it was, it was a great guess on her part. <laughs> well, sometimes parents have a little bit of intuition about, you know, what their kids are made of and, yeah. you know, some of that. So, yeah, kudos to her for recognizing <laughs> that. And, you know, I know for me, I know when I started to tech, I thought, well, if I don't like this, you know, this major, I can always change. Yeah, so there was exactly. some of that, you know, so probably had the same, same thinking. So Definitely. when did you realize 
at Tech that you were in the right program? Was there a certain class you took or was it just a kind of build up over the four years or however long it took you to get you out? You know, it was pretty early. Um, I don't recall specific classes, but even in the first year, we were starting to, obviously we're starting to learn programming. Uh, I believe we started with Python, which is pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. And then we moved on to uh, Java. And then at some point we did C and a bunch of other smaller languages. But as soon as we started like prototyping games and things like that, I was pretty hooked um, because I just, I'd never seen anyone do that before. I'd never done it myself. And the concept is pretty foreign to most people that you can sort of think up an idea and then with like a rudimentary understanding of a programming language, you can, you know, create a base level game uh, in a single day, even in an hour or two. It's, It's a foreign concept and something that, Maybe you don't believe until you try it for yourself. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, those first few experiences where I got to start prototyping either text-based games or basic, like, 2D games, um, it, it really made me understand that this was something that normal people could actually do. Um, and I, I could start seeing, like, how you could go from the most basic prototypes to something more complex. Hmm. Did you feel like um, the idea then drove the tech or was it in reverse? If you weren't sort of like lifelong coder, um, did you feel like having to learn the technology first gave you that creativity or did you always sort of have these ideas about, you know, I can do this and now I know the way to do it? For sure. I had always had the passion to create things. Um, Mm. Before I really was involved in tech, um, I used to make a lot of comic books. (laughs) Again, something that I I didn't have a, a huge understanding of, but it was something that I, you know, like the Sunday comics. It's something that you see and that you enjoy and that you figure out how to emulate. Um, writing was the same way I would read books and then try and write my own and things like that. Um, and it was the same way with games. I, I'd always loved games, but for the longest time I'd struggled to even like paper prototype something because a, I just didn't understand like how to, I mean like physically I understood how to, but just coming up with the rules and things like that were complicated. And then when you got into the computer space, like I had no understanding of programming as a kid, but like you said, as soon as I started learning these tools, then it was a matter of understanding the actual like game design and it, the tech was less of a barrier. Mm -hmm. So was there, um, was there anything that uh, you found um, revolutionary that you completely didn't expect, um, either from a coding uh, technology or a certain class that really sort of, um, you know, gave you that inspiration to kind of do this long term? Hmm. Well, this, I don't remember any like aha moment that sort of changed everything, mm-hmm. but there, 
there were definitely like small instances where uh, there was a class, I forget which language we were learning. It might have been Python, but everyone was making, actually, I think it was C. Everyone was making like very basic like side scroller games. And I was too. And it was sort of like our final product to like make a slightly bigger game and have it be like playable. And then you'd have to demo it. And I remember like demoing mine and it was fairly on par with a bunch of the other students. And then this one kid comes up and he'd essentially somehow programmed like a 3d doom game, like a shooter. And it was, it was just so far beyond what I even understood was possible. Yeah. And so things like that, it, it made me understand that, you know, there's so much depth to these languages that even if you understand things at a service level, like it can go so far beyond that. Um, but to sort of get at your bigger question, it's interesting um, that even after I graduated from Georgia Tech, I actually didn't really put the pieces together that uh, a game designer was like a role that normal people could apply for and become. Yeah. Uh, when, when I saw there were some TV shows growing up that sort of featured the games industry and like E3 and things like that. And they would talk about these really big game designers like Peter Molyneux and Will Wright, um, like the guy who made uh, The Sims. Mm -hmm. um, and all of these guys were very programmer heavy. And so they approached design from a, from a very strong knowledge of computer programming and systems. And, and then they figured out design as they built out a lot of systems. And I didn't end up loving programming as much as I thought I would. And so I struggled to see myself in that profession because I thought that anyone who works in the games industry either has to be like a really good digital artist or they have to be a really good programmer. And I mm -hmm. think that's what most people think about the games industry. That's um, my perception. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so having to explain game design to people is pretty funny because most people think I program all the time. And when I tell them that I don't, then they think that I'm an artist. Um, but so what I actually do is I like to think of myself more as a systems designer, but not in the sense of like programming systems. I really, what I do most of the time is I think about mostly like on paper and in spreadsheets, how different systems in the game will work how things function and like interconnect. It's, it's basically like a massive logic framework for the game that mm -hmm. I, then I can convey that to artists and programmers so that they understand the vision for the actual building of the game. And that, that took a couple years for me to even understand was a role after college. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty complex. 
um, just alignment to mm-hmm. uh, really understand that and see how that, that works. Cause you're right. I just, I figured everyone was a coder and then they sort of just figured out, okay, I've got this, um, you know, this is kind of the current state of, of this industry or this game or whatever. And mm-hmm. I know a way I can kind of change some of this. And you mentioned earlier for some people that don't necessarily know, you know, what a, a side crawler, um, you know, game is, which is really two dimensional, right? So yep. it's, you know, Mario, Donkey Kong, whatever, you're just running from left to right or right to left. And it's exactly. not, it's not moving forward or backwards as you're looking at the screen. Right. Um, so you, um, you graduated from tech and did you do any internships with any companies that helped kind of reinforce this or gave you any, um, any new experience? So I did, uh, I did two internships. Actually I did three internships um, during during my undergrad, the first, I, I almost forgot about the first one. So because I'm an avid ultimate Frisbee fan, um, I remember that. My, <laughs> my mom helped me get a job with a company called Spin Ultimate in Atlanta, and they make uh, athletic apparel for mainly for ultimate players. Um, and so I worked with them for a while and I was mostly doing like deliveries and stuff like that. And for a brief period, uh, I dabbled in basically their graphic design, which was more or less people sending them uh, like ideas for images that they want printed on apparel. And then you sort of have to tweak and clean them up. And so I, I learned Illustrator a bit um, for that job, but uh, I, I didn't fall in love with it. So, so that was a fun summer thing though. And then I think, at the end of my junior year, I actually got an internship with Nickelodeon um, in in Burbank. Yeah, and I I was doing IT for them basically, so it wasn't really games focused at all. But I've always kind of prioritized interesting people and companies. Um, somewhat over like the specific role at least back then i did yeah. and uh nickelodeon was really interesting they treat their interns very well and they gave us a lot of opportunities to shadow different people i actually got to sit in on some dailies with uh butch Harmon, who's the creator of fairly odd parents mm-hmm. and just see how people like that think and work uh, that was really interesting um, but again, it didn't really push me in a career direction specifically. And then at, basically at the end of uh, my senior year, I did a, a pretty long internship. I think it was about eight months with Adult Swim Games, um, yep. which is you know right across the street from Georgia Tech. And I was doing games QA for them. So that was kind of my first games job. And that was really interesting because I, I basically just QA'd their entire library of web and mobile games. And I think the most interesting part was we, we were producing this game called Super House of Dead Ninjas. <laughs> <laughs> and the developers, I can't remember where they were based, but essentially they would call in like every other day and they would ask about like 
how the builds were looking and basically how the game was looking and playing. And I would write up QA notes and play through the game, you know, hundreds of times to give so them these, good notes. So these developers were offshore? Yeah, then, they were offshore for sure. So they, they code it, you know, at night Atlanta time. Then yeah. you get the new code, um, whatever branch they put it in that you could test it in. You spent the day kind of dissecting whatever they built the previous night. Exactly. Very cool. And, and that was that was really eye-opening because, you know, with a lot of these games, I didn't, I wasn't really aware because Adult Swim Games was mostly a producer. So we, we like made sure the game got shipped and promoted, but we weren't really building games. And this was the first time that I was able to interact with someone who was actually in the process of building a game. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would post things like, mock-ups of enemies that they were like uh doing the art for and things like that building levels and i would actually get to see like how this game was being made step by step and and that was huge for me yeah i mean that i remember you you talking about that and i had kind of forgotten about some of the experiences but that was i think probably top five internships of all time that i've heard yeah. so far because i mean what, a, what <laughs> i could just hear you telling your friends <laughs> Let me get straight. You get paid to play games all day. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, take notes, but try to break it. Yeah, it's pretty good. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. So you come out of you come out of tech, um, not really interested in doing um, Nickelodeon, going back to LA and doing that route, um, or Adult Swim. What did you wind up doing? Yeah. So unfortunately, Adult Swim just really wasn't in a hiring phase at that point. And so it wasn't even an option for me to stay on their team. Yeah. And so, yeah, just I graduated the summer of 2012. And then I was trying to figure out what to do. And again, it didn't really occur to me that I could work in video games. Um, at that point, uh, the games industry in Atlanta was not huge. There was maybe one or two companies, but they were kind of established. And I didn't have any experience really unless you count games QA. And so I sort of drifted towards film because I'd always been a big um, fan of film. I'd taken a bunch of film courses. I even did a study abroad for film at Tech. Yep. And I knew that there was film stuff going on in Atlanta. It was already at the point where Georgia was offering big subsidies to film crews to come film here. And so basically all of the filming was kind of shifting from Hollywood to Atlanta and, you know, uh, outside the perimeter of Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I, w I went around and interviewed a bunch of editors because I, I liked video editing and I wanted to see sort of what that space was like. And there, there weren't really a lot of hirings at all. All of the editors were like, 55 years old and plan to keep editing for the next 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> and so then I started being an extra in films and TV shows to try and meet people considering working on a film crew. Mm -hmm. and I saw how film crews worked and it was, you know, pretty brutal long hours. And at, at that point in time, I wasn't, wasn't really seeing that as something that I wanted to do. And so I was, I was pretty lost. I knew that I still liked tech 
Um, and obviously I'd done QA before. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking at QA roles and that's kind of when I, uh, fell into shop visible. Yep. Yep. Cause we, um, you came in to kind of help shore up the, the, the formalized QA testing. And I know that you were there for a year, about a year and a half. Yeah. yeah year and a half. And, uh, yeah, so we were, we were an e-commerce company. So we had a platform that brick and mortar companies could, you know, augment their, you know, in-person sales with uh, selling online, small to medium companies, a couple of bigger ones, but um, really a lot of them are just kind of just learning the space. And um, we had kind of a niche with that smaller group, but uh, a really good group of people it was a small, you know, kind of fast paced environment. Um, we had a, uh, a pretty sharp CTO and, and um, he would come up with ideas at 3 a.m. and we'd roll it out the next day. And it was, uh, exactly. yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting time where there were there elements that you took from shop visible that um, you're still using today, or is this kind of a, a sort of like the end of your QA world? Well, one thing I'll say is that uh, you made a great first impression and you continue to make a good impression my entire time there. I was pretty, I was very impressed with how much you sort of took like ownership and pride of the team that worked under you, including me. Mm -hmm. um, it, it always felt like whenever there was some sort of like conflict or things like that, that you were, you were always at bat for us and that that was just a really good feeling because I've learned, obviously that was my first full-time role and it's easy to assume that your boss is always going to stand up for you like that. But I've had other jobs where it's certainly not the case. Yeah. And it, it makes me appreciate that a lot more. Well, that's very kind. I appreciate that. And, and to your point, I've had jobs like that where people didn't always back you or mm -hmm. there was some political world. And I just... I hated being in that situation. So if I felt like I could control that or at least, you know, just build that camaraderie um, mm -hmm. that uh, it was, it just made things a better place to be, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, cool, man. So yeah, you leave shop visible and then uh, um, I think, yeah, cause I, I can't remember, I should have done my homework, but I think you went to, you did some game design after that, right? That was your first step into that world. So the reason I ended up leaving shop visible in, 2014 was actually to go back to school that's right it was grad school and that's it when was, you wound up going to vancouver right? yeah exactly so so there was funnily enough there uh this school called the center for digital media had some ties with georgia tech I d i'm not sure how but they sent out an email to tech alumni which i still received and they were having a seminar uh, to talk about the school and it, I'm sure it mentioned game design in the email. And so I, I went to the talk and I listened to them and I was, I was really taken aback because it was kind of exactly what I'd been looking for, for the past couple months. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I, I just kind of took the leap. I moved out to Vancouver. Um, it was, it was about a one and a half year program uh, really, the first year was just like intense uh, project-focused work, uh, team-based projects. And a lot of it was allowed me to do game design specifically. And then the last six months, roughly, were sort of a mandatory 
uh, work slash internship. And so, yeah, so I, I did the Center for Digital Media. It, it was essentially exactly what I'd been looking for because it gave me the opportunity to work on small teams with other people that were really driven to make games. And it allowed me to focus on figuring out game design and exactly what that meant and how that worked while having other people that excelled in complementary talents like art and programming and things like that. That's cool. Yeah, what a great experience to sort of be around kind of like-minded people and really feed off of each other. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so then at the tail end of that experience, I, I did a, an internship at Rainmaker, um, which was actually, so we had a connection with Rainmaker because we did a, a game project for them. It was, it was called like a second screen experience. Mm-hmm. We essentially designed a, a prototype for a, a playable card game. You could actually play it online versus other people. And uh, it, it was created to integrate into a TV show they were developing so that as the show is playing, it was like a, a cartoon for kids. As the show is playing, there would be something on screen that you can scan and then you would get new cards and then you could play in different battles in the game that matched the different episodes in the TV show. Oh, that's pretty wild. Had yeah. that been done before? Or was that kind of a new concept? It was pretty new as far as I know. Um, the whole second screen transmedia uh, was kind of uh, peaking at that point. Everyone was interested in, you know, since mobile was starting to blow up in mm-hmm. 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. everyone wanted to know, okay, well, TV's still big and mobile's big. How do we, how do we create this like cross-platform integration? Yeah. Obviously, it's much more sophisticated now, but back then, that's what we came up with. The client was pretty happy. It didn't actually ever make it to production, but it did lead to me interning with them to sort of further work on that, as well as just like learn a bit more about um, the TV side. They were basically a TV animation company. Mm-hmm. And so that was interesting, but it, you know, funnily enough, it was kind of my third TV studio I'd worked at <laughs> inadvertently between yeah. Nickelodeon and Adult Swim and Rainmaker. So I, <laughs> At that point, I, I definitely knew I didn't want to work in TV, um, but I was still getting to work on games at the studio, and so that was still valuable. I was also working directly under their president CEO, so that was valuable in its own ways to see you know, how to run a larger company and, and just how a business is handled on, it, on a daily basis. Yeah. What a great experience. And it's funny because like you mentioned the three studios, and then when you were actually looking to work with a studio, nothing was really available that you were interested in, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's funny how life spins that some ways. Yeah. So you were um, were at Rainmaker for, um, that was coming out of grad school, that was where you wound up landing for for your first job? Yeah, so that was an internship. I did that for about three to four months. And then actually, so I already knew that it was sort of a fixed term deal. Um, I did get an offer to continue on there, um, because, you know, they enjoyed having me at the same time. I knew that I needed to get to a game studio and Mm -hmm. I knew that, uh, Vancouver is a very good spot 
especially for indie game studios, um, as well as some larger studios. And so at the tail end of my Rainmaker internship, I actually started a second job working at V2 Games, which was really my first proper game design job. And I was working on, uh, yeah, basically mobile games for a fairly startup company. Was it, um, when you say mobile games, is that for all platforms or just certain? It was just for, um, for like uh, Apple and Android phones, basically. Okay. Gotcha. And so what was your role on that? Were you, um, did you have some of the creative side? Did you do some of the coding? Was it both? Did everybody do everything there? So I think I was hired on as a narrative game designer, which is funny because one, it's funny because it's not really what I ended up doing, but also because that's kind of exactly the role that I had wanted. And everyone I was talking to while networking was telling me that it was too niche uh, and that I needed to just sort of broaden my, my search. Uh, mm-hmm. Essentially what a narrative game designer is, is they sort of view game design. I mean, it's kind of what it sounds like. They view it from the narrative standpoint. So they make sure that everything that's going into the game supports the story that the game is trying to tell. So you wouldn't have someone like this in a game that's just purely action. But if a game is more story driven, then you need someone who's sort of looking at every element that's being prepared and Mm -hmm. making sure that visually, like audibly, like all of the text, all of that's supporting the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the reason I got hired on as that position is because the first game we were working on was sort of like a, it was like a detective, um, like finding clues and interrogating people kind of game. Mm-hmm. And there was, a, there was a big story, like script written with it. And so I was brought on to try and create essentially the entire game around that. Um, it did lead to me getting in to some game engines, doing a bit of programming Although um, we were working in this engine called Unity and I'm pretty sure we found some tools that were like fairly uh, distanced from programming in that uh, it's basically like visual programming. So you can sort of like create nodes and like create like graphs on screen and then that creates the logic mm-hmm. that, that normally you would program to do all of that. There's sort of like an overhead built in that uh, sort of simplifies the process. Um, gotcha. It, get, it allows you to focus a little bit more on the creative side rather than have to deal with the nuts and bolts. Exactly. Yeah. And so I worked in tools like that. Um, we worked on that game for quite a while, and then it sort of got put on the side. I, the game was just, I think, maybe a little too ambitious, um, especially for someone as new to the industry as me. Um, we only had a few people on it. I was, I was the main game designer. I think we had one artist who was possibly an intern uh, supporting me. And then I don't think we really had any programmer working on it at that point. So I was doing all of the prototyping and stuff like that. But that was okay. a really good learning experience to sort of, you know, you need to make mistakes to learn. And yeah. I was still figuring out uh, how game design worked, finding my footing. And I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make early in their career is just trying to fit every idea into a game um, when really 
you need to scope your ideas down realistically because if you're trying to do everything, then you're going to end up like building nothing substantial. Um, and so that was, that was a good learning experience for, I, I stayed at, at that company and I continued to work on other games. I know I did a lot of prototypes for various genres. And then the longest game that I worked on after that was sort of an idle game, which is basically a game that plays itself. <laughs> Interesting. And it's a very popular genre. It was very baffling to me at first, but essentially you like you purchase characters and then the characters form a team that like fight for you. And they fight <laughs> even when you're not doing anything. But if you tap on screen, then they'll like fight faster and you can like defeat enemies faster. And it's sort of like this constant churn of like fighting an enemy, earning currency to upgrade so that you can defeat the next enemy. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, it, w it, was, it was a much deeper genre than I realized I was getting into because it's, it's really a math game. Like, not so much from the player's perspective, but from the game designer's perspective, you can sort of map the entire game out in an Excel spreadsheet of just math curves. Mm -hmm. And then the game just sort of runs from there. Like every, everything can kind of just play itself as long as the math is correct. Yeah. And that was a big challenge for me because it was a lot more math than I was used to doing for games. Um, and yeah, it, it was just a good learning experience. I had to, I had to really dig into what other games in the genre were doing and how I can sort of replicate that without just straight copying. Gotcha. That's, that's, I've never heard of that, that uh, genre before, yeah. but I guess, I guess it make you know, it's some of it's like, you know, um, a demo screen or a, even like a screensaver, but obviously it's within a game. And then there's probably some element of, you know, like my son had edu educated me on how the whole Twitch thing works and right. that, you know, you're watching other people play and, you know, there's an element to that. Um, but that's kind of cool that you can actually then, it's almost like you're on the sidelines, but if you want to jump in and make, um, I'm going to put a sports analogy, but you want to make that quarterback throw farther or, you know, do it, call some audible or something, you can right. tweak how the game would normally be playing with you controlling some of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So exactly what you said the thing is, for people who are just, I guess, obsessed might be the right word, <laughs> obsessed with video games like I am, um, they, kind of, they kind of just want to surround themselves with games all the time. And so one thing I learned, especially from this first full-time job in game design, is that mobile games are treated very differently from you know xbox games or computer games yeah with mobile games people are generally playing them when they're on the go so sometimes they're on the train or sometimes they're walking down the street oftentimes they're only holding their phone with one hand probably because they're holding something else in their other hand mm -hmm. and so the games need to cater to a people who can only play with one hand and b people who don't have a lot of time because Maybe you're only on the train for eight minutes. Yeah. And so you just need this, these quick bursts of gameplay. And if you can't really, 
if you're not in a good spot where you can really play the game, then it helps that the game can play itself and you can sort of just be an observer. That's yeah, that's actually really, really interesting because you're right. Um, you can't really immerse yourself because the environment's so different. You know, if you're sitting in your living room, you can pretty much control that. But right. on a train, you may sometimes you have a seat, you can actually use both hands. Other times you're standing and you got to hold a rail with one or. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's pretty interesting. Do you find do you um, do you have a preference between platforms or they all have their own uniqueness that you find interesting? Um, you know, like like a lot of people who've played video games their entire life, I definitely used to uh, sort of disregard mobile games mm-hmm. and and really they weren't what they are now is much different than what they were when I was growing up. Um, I, I would play things like Pong on my phone when I was, you know, in high school. Yeah. But nowadays they have, you know, almost console level game quality on a mobile phone. Um, yeah. What was that? Was that Nokia game? It was like Snake or something, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. I, I definitely have a, a preference towards computer games just from all of my childhood being focused mm-hmm. around that. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much more control that you have when you're at your computer. And not only can you play the game with, you know, a full mouse and keyboard, but you can also download mods and things like that to adapt the game, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I've definitely found good space to fit mobile games, like, into my daily life. Um, obviously I'm not at my computer 24 seven, at least I wasn't pre COVID. Yeah. (laughs) And, and so I, you know, I would take the train to work and I would want something to do for that 30 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. And so I would, yeah, I would just look up what mobile game genres do interest me and, and which ones can I get into and which ones are most compelling in these short bursts of time that I have. So you sort of have to approach them in different ways, but you can still get interesting stuff out of all of them. Yeah, that's, they, they each have their own um, appeal and their own audience for sure. Exactly. So what, um, so you, you did a little bit of, um, just remember in your bio, there was something with escape rooms or something. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So, yeah. So after maybe two to three years at, v2 games i transitioned to another company that some of my friends had actually started at and i thought it sounded interesting um and it was called immersive tech and yeah essentially they built escape rooms uh for clients and so again it was sort of something where i was jumping into the deep end without really understanding like what water was and mm-hmm. so, <laughs> so escape rooms were fairly new to me. I think they were just catching on with like the broader audience. And I, I certainly had not been like an early adopter of the, of the activity, mm-hmm. but yeah, essentially this was again, a fairly startup company. It, it maybe grew to like 20 people as I was there, but when I started, it was less than 10 and there was only there was one game designer there when I started, and then essentially I became the other game designer. 
Um, and yeah, we were just cranking out escape rooms. <laughs> and these were physical escape rooms, right? These weren't like a, a digital one. Yeah. So at first we were doing purely physical escape rooms, essentially, you know, we would sort of reach out to people, just try and get our name out there a bit. And then somebody would say, Oh, you know, we had this client that, uh, I think ran like a ski lodge or at least had property near a ski lodge and they're like oh it'd be great if we could put an escape room up here and theme it like a winter log cabin kind mm -hmm. of thing and so yeah so then you know we'd have the the direction from the client and then we'd sort of start creating the general outline of like okay here's how many like physical rooms uh the players will go between like here's how many puzzles there will be here's like the general story and outline and then we'd pitch that back to the client if they were bought in at that point then we'd start designing all of the puzzles out and then we actually had a fabrication team that we were very close with that would start building all of these unique puzzle objects and all of the set decoration for the rooms and then it wasn't actually until later that I became involved in the final step of the process, which was installation. And so we'd fly down. It was almost exclusively uh, clients in the U.S. And so we'd fly down to some state in the U.S. And uh, we'd sort of like hole up in a room for like three to seven days and just build this entire thing and then test it. And then, yeah, it would basically run and the client could run it from then on. And, uh, you know, they paid us up front, but then they got to run it like a business after that. So in some ways, it kind of sounds like um, set design for a film, right? Yeah, I, I didn't realize it at first, but that's exactly what it became. I mean, it was part set design. It was part, you know, puzzle game design. Yep. And with a bunch of other things sprinkled in between. And then as we started getting more clients, we actually realized that we didn't have to do just like these large physical rooms. We started branching out a bit into digital. Um, we actually did a, we, we did a few projects that were sort of like training seminars for internal company, internal meetings and events. Uh, we did one for Smith and Nephew, which is a, a big medical company. Um, and they were having some conference where they wanted to sort of uh, do a fun training exercise. And they sent us a bunch of assets. And then we created this digital game that they could run on computers. Um, and we even started, we, we did a huge project for Intel that I was sort of front running. And we created these like puzzle crates they were like these these small crates on wheels and you would get keys and unlock the different drawers in this crate and then get different like puzzle objects and and they did like i actually flew down for several of their large events and they had like 12 person teams and we built like six crates for uh for each uh event and then we would ship them to different countries like india and uh various places in europe and basically all over the world and that was really interesting pretty wild i had yeah. no idea that that uh you know the companies invested in some of that but that's 
I mean, what a great way to sort of celebrate a team or to bond a team, you know, I mean, there's, you know, the old obstacle courses and some of the outward bound type things, but, but that's really kind of a unique thing that's um, kind of taking that escape room to the next level for sure. It's, it's funny how an escape room can show a person's true colors (laughs) because, you know, you put a little bit of stress on somebody, you never know how they're going to react. Yeah. And it's, it's also interesting to see that, you know, sometimes the smartest person in the room is not necessarily the one who's going to help you uh, the most in an escape room because you need, you need sort of a leader and you need followers. And if the, if the group synergy just isn't there, then it could fall apart very quickly. Yeah. I've been in a couple of escape rooms with coworkers and you're right. You can kind of tell going into it, like, okay, these are the two alphas. They're going to want to be in charge. They're going to talk the loudest. They're not going to get along or they're going to have different ideas. And there's going to be like people that sort of fall back. Like I would, I would usually kind of assess the room and just kind of look for things that are kind of hidden because you know, something's going to come up and you're going to need that file that one away, you know, exactly. but it's, but yeah, it is a really interesting study about personality. I tried, man, I tried so hard to get my family to do one because I thought it would be hilarious just to yeah. kind of see how the five of us would operate. Right. It, it, uh, it was tough sell, man. I could, I couldn't close the deal. Oh. So I haven't given up on it yet, but I, yeah, it would day. be interesting. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that's cool. So you're, um, but you, you moved on from, um, Immersive tech, right? So now you're right. at a, you're at a new role, or I mean, new to to me. But tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. Sure. So yeah. So from immersive tech, I ended up getting an offer to be a lead game designer at BBTV. So essentially, uh, BBTV is a a large media company in Vancouver. Um, we essentially host a lot of content for a lot of different content creators around the world. And um, the company as a whole supports, um, you know, like social influencers on different channels like YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and all those things. And they they work with those creators to figure out how to maximize uh, their content, their audience, and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I work on a basically a smaller team within the company. The company itself is. Uh, I think over 200 people, um, but my team is around six people and we're called BVTV Interactive. Mm-hmm. And essentially we create mobile games for social influencers and specifically uh, YouTubers right now. And so we reach out to people who have strong brands and strong audiences um, that we think would be a good fit for a game. And essentially we we pitch them different game ideas that we think are in line with their channel and who they are as a person. And then some of them respond positively. And then we start uh, building uh, a game for them that's sort of tailored to their image and will like promote their channel and connect well with their audience. Okay. So it's an interactive way for their fans to feel like they're a part of this um, celebrity, influencer, whatever the case is. Exactly. That's cool. So um, can you give an example of one? I, I, this is totally foreign to me, but I'm sure my kids know all about this. But sure. give an example of one that, would, that works. So, uh, yeah. So a lot, of our, um, a lot of our channels skew pretty young. Um, but what we found is that uh, 
YouTubers who have young audiences, generally they're, they're like some of the strongest audiences we found um, just because these, you know, these are sort of like, I don't know if, if they're like a parent figure or they're just sort of like their best friend or their superhero, something like that. Mm -hmm. But we, we have a really strong relationship with this uh, channel called Spy Ninja Network. Um, the creator's called Chad Wildclay. Again, it skews pretty young, but essentially he's created this fiction around him of being uh, this quote-unquote spy ninja, and he sort of, like, fights hackers and, like, has all these, like, ninja gadgets and weapons and stuff. And basically he's just created this universe around him that's very engaging for kids, and they want to know what's going to happen next. They want to you know, they want to see like the villains get stopped and the good guys win. And so we created an app for them that's sort of like a mini game collection where you get to do different like spy activities and things like that. And you get to see videos from Chad and other people on his channel. And it's just really like sucking you into the, the fiction of the Spy Ninja Network and making you feel like it's much bigger than just like these videos that he posts every couple of days. So it gives you more of an immersion rather exactly. than just being kind of on the sidelines, watching a video, waiting for the next one to post. Yeah. And it's tough for YouTubers because, you know, it's not quite like Twitch where on Twitch um, you can get sort of instant feedback or validation. You can write a comment to somebody streaming and they can reply to you in real time. And then, and then you feel like, wow, they actually like, saw me or they know me mm -hmm. but with youtube uh especially with larger channels it's just too hard for the creator to reply to every comment anything like that and it's just there's sort of a, a barrier in that connection so you can you can watch their videos and connect with them in some ways but adding these like extra um, features like having a game uh, where you can get extra content and you know he does cool things like players will play the games and earn high scores and then he'll call out their names in his videos and he'll say like, Oh, congrats to like these 10 people for getting the high score this week. And yeah, it's, it's just like a, a bigger like show of affection and endearment. You know, it's, I mean, it's, that's, that's a familiar concept. Cause I, you know, I remember hearing like some of these stand up comedians that, got tv shows and they right. talk like you know seinfeld's an obvious one right so yeah you know he was a stand-up comedian and what he'd say and others have said the same thing is that when i'm on stage i know right away if a joke nails you know yep. kills and you get the immediate feedback you know whereas if you're doing a tv show you know you put it together and you know if the staff or the you know the cast or the crew laughs you kind of get that but you don't really know what the global audience is really going to respond to until right. much later or if ever right so that's a similar feel imagine that uh the more the more instant feedback is probably a bigger rush but also a validation of what you're doing is good right for sure yeah and that's i think that's why twitch has done so well and we uh as a company and even in my smaller team we have uh started connections with you know people on a lot of different platforms including twitch because we understand that um with that instant feedback, you have the potential to have like the most engaged and committed audience. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Twitch itself was, it, it took me a while to get my head around that because I just found it fascinating that you'd have a global audience that would come on and watch somebody play a game, right. um, interact with them, and then also even make donations, you know, to yep. this player. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm equating, like, certainly aging myself. I'm 55, so I grew up in the 80s with console video games. Mm-hmm. And the thought of going into, like, an arcade and then not just putting a quarter on the glass saying, I got the next game once you're done, but to pay this dude to keep playing so I could watch and get to the next level. I just, it was so foreign to me. But, yeah. but it is a different type of interaction. And um, I could see where fans, you know, that have like, oh, you know, so-and-so that's, you know, great at whatever the game is, you know, called me out or he recognizes me or you feel like there's, there's some connection there. I think that's a whole different, different appeal. Yeah, you know, I think if you pulled like uh, even Gen Y, but Gen Z and uh, just much younger people, they they would identify a lot closer with these like online and esports celebrities than they would with anyone in Hollywood. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that's that you certainly spend more of your time doing that. Yeah. And so I th- I think like to them, like the the next Fortnite uh, world champion is a bigger deal than Brad Pitt, and it's someone that they would want to spend money to interact with. And you know that brings up a good point too, because you know five months now we've pretty much been shut down with COVID, right. and so there's been no there's been no film industry happening here in Atlanta or in California, but yet the esports has continued to to move on and all the other online games. I mean, so I'd be curious to see, you know, a year or two from now where people that have spent more time doing things online, if that's gained a bigger and more um, loyal following than, you know, they've ever had before. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, in the games industry as a whole, especially like at my company, obviously like every other company, we're sort of assessing like, okay, what is – what is like purely remote work going to mean for the company and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. And, and what's it going to mean for, you know, our audience gaming as a whole, I think has actually seen positive results in that a lot of people are spending a lot of time at home and in front of a screen and they're consuming more content than ever before. Mm-hmm. And there have been adverse effects in that, um, you know, advertisements are not necessarily worth as much as they were before, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the audience is growing and there's different ways that you can take advantage of that. But it's interesting in esports because they have this extra detail of um, these physical tournaments, uh, which essentially mimic real sports in that you can buy tickets and go view them. I've actually been to a a League of Legends um, North American uh, finals tournament. Um, really? That was hosted in Vancouver. Yeah, I went to a stadium and I watched the match and you can see the players on stage. And so that kind of thing is really, to me, invaluable to esports because you have a chance occasionally to meet these people in person. And that has been removed from uh, the current landscape of esports, and I do think that people feel that. Um, so I don't think that esports is actually unaffected right now. I never would have thought about that. 
But yeah, that's, I mean, if that is definitely an appeal and, and, you know, where you've got a player that's accessible and, um, right. you know, that you would normally see, you know, LeBron wouldn't be accessible to the general public. Right. Um, but you know, a lot of these other, um, you know, they're celebrities, people know them and they recognize them, but they, they can interact better with the fans. Um, I never would have thought that that would have been a big, a big appeal to it. Yeah. But yeah I can see where, yeah, for sure. That's pretty wild. Well, um, last question for you, man, then I'll let you go. Um, so I asked this question of all these guests, uh, what advice would you give to a younger you? Um, and this could be really anything from while you were in school to, you know, starting in a job or any other things with work-life balance or whatever, but, um, what, what sort of advice do you think back on your, your, your career? And obviously you've got a long way to go, but just thinking back, what, what jumps out? Definitely. So I'll, I'll start with some basic advice for someone who's kind of lost like I was at the end of high school and then some advice for somebody who starts getting into the games industry. So to start out, I think what really helped me figure out um, that I wanted to be in games and work uh, in game design is I really just thought about what do I enjoy doing with my life in general? What do I do as a hobby? What do I do uh, when I want to relax? And so for me, video games had always been sort of that thing that not only was like a relaxation tool, but it was something that I liked to think critically about. I like to talk about, I like to watch TV shows and read articles about. And so it's still kind of a mystery how it took me so long to figure it out. But really, like, once I realized that video games had been such a big part of my life and not because I had intentionally, like, steered it in that direction, it just naturally was, then I understood that, you know, if there was, like, one job working in video games, then, like, I needed to have it. Mm -hmm. And so from there, once I did find myself approaching game design jobs, um, here's basically the advice that I would have given myself in terms of like, how do I better prepare myself um, for these jobs? And like, maybe I don't necessarily have any experience yet. So what do I do? And so basically my advice is first, um, you just need to start making games. Um, and I know that sounds hard, but it actually gets easier every year, I think. Um, there's a lot of good tools uh, that you can download purely for free. I mentioned Unity um, earlier, but Unity is basically a free game engine um, that's widely supported and used for mostly 3D, but also some 2D games. Uh, Unreal Engine is another big one for 3D games. And then in terms of 2D, there's a lot of like slightly smaller platforms, but like Game Maker, Game Maker 2 is a big tool. Um, there's this tool called Godot, which came out that's also quite popular. And there's a bunch more. You basically just need to pick one and, you know, try and get comfortable with it. Watch a lot of YouTube tutorials because there's so many tutorials now for all of these. Yeah. Um, you can even, you can go to these, uh, these game engine websites and with a lot of them, like especially in Unity and I'm sure in Unreal, you can download sample projects that they've pre-built for you. So it's basically a finished game that you can download and then pick apart piece by piece 
and then start tweaking things and then basically reverse engineer a game. And you know, that's a, that's a really good way. Yeah. Um, the other thing that sort of held me back that I, that I sort of found through grad school through to the center for digital media was that I really needed to work in a small team in order to understand like how best to use my skills because I wasn't, like the strongest programmer and I wasn't an artist. And so I had been making games before that point, but it wasn't until I, I found these small teams of people that I was able to sort of, you know, delegate tasks that I wasn't uh, skilled at and have them, uh, you know, create great material and then be able to design on top of that and create things that were like truly bigger than the sum of their parts. Gotcha. Um, so really kind of know your own strengths, right? And leverage those. Yeah. Know your own strengths, find people who complement those strengths and then, you know, work with them and just start building stuff. So that's, that's the first big one. And then I guess um, the smaller notes that I would give are that you just need to, like any industry, you need to understand the space. You need to, you know, read about what these companies are making obviously play video games, but I'm sure anyone who wants to get into game design already plays a lot of video games. Yeah. Um, play games that you don't even like, but that you think are interesting or weird or people praise, but you don't understand why. You should play those games and figure out what kind of interesting mechanics they're using in order to you know, create their own niche in the space. Because if you can understand that stuff, then you can sort of have a leg up on people who are just, you know, uh, creating the same copy of the same game every single year. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point because it also keeps your mind open to uh, entertaining new things and not just blocking things out because either you don't like, you know, the gameplay or the intro or the concept or the whatever. Definitely. Yeah. And then, and then the last last couple of things I would say are try and try and learn programming at least try and experience programming. If, if nothing else to understand what it is and how it's used to make games. Um, I, you know, even though I don't program a ton at work, I can't tell you the number of times that it's helped me to understand, like, why does this bug keep popping up in this game? Like, why is this code broken? And then, you know, because I'd programmed before, I would understand like, oh, they're probably making this mistake or like, oh, my instructions weren't clear enough. So, they programmed it like this, but I actually wanted it different. And I can give like an informed critique as opposed to just saying like, I don't understand, like it's not, it's not working. And so understanding programming and lastly, understanding, you know, math, uh, not necessarily like calculus level, but uh, some game genres like the idle game genre, they, mm -hmm. they just use a lot of math and, um, you're going to want to be able to understand like how to create economies. Most games have some form of economy where there's uh, an income of currency and you have to spend it on different things. And you're, you're going to need to be able to balance like how much money do I give the player at level one and how much do I give them at level 20 and all of that stuff. Like it's really helpful and you don't have to be a master at it, but the better you are, the more of an advantage it will give you versus other game designers. Yeah. No, that's, that's really, uh, that's really important. I think math's kind of the basis for everything, right? Whether yep. you're coding or you're in the business side of things, but uh, 
This is a great list, man. Um, I do have a question for you because um, you'd mentioned like being able to download some of those um, those engines and some of the free tools that you can get. Yep. Is there a, kind of a, a minimum, you know, gaming device or rig that you that you think would be at least um, a starting point for people that maybe don't have a PC, you know, without having to spend like, you know, five grand on a insane machine. What are some specs that you can get away with to at least start doing some of this? That's a good question. You know, I would say these days, like, I think, um, I think graphics cards are becoming fairly cheap these days. I know that RAM is, and you can probably get away with, you know, like eight gigs of RAM, but honestly, like 16 is pretty much the new standard. Mm -hmm. And if you can find cheap enough RAM, like 16 gigs of RAM, you don't need an incredible graphics card, but you need like a serviceable one. Yeah. I have, I have like a, uh, Radeon 1050, I think, which will probably be good for the next uh, five to eight years at least. Yeah. And then again, like processor-wise, you really don't need anything incredible. You can get like uh, an old i7 that's probably been around for at least five years at this point, if not ten. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like a lot of this stuff, you can probably find refurbished. I'm sure you can find computer monitors refurbished and stuff like that you don't obviously don't need a fancy keyboard or mouse mm -hmm. um and yeah if you if you can just find good deals when i built my first computer at tech you know it was under a thousand um and that was starting from scratch and so i was pretty happy with that and if you know i could have actually cheaped out even more and probably gotten under 800 so it is possible. And, you know, if you can't do it all at once, then just start buying one part at a time or try and find an entire refurbished computer. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these engines are not super intensive. I've run unity on my laptop before and worked that way. Okay. Um, it's, if all you're doing is prototyping, then you can get away with a pretty crummy PC. <laughs> well the, the good thing too is if you build your own you've got components you can swap out so even if you bought something that was you know either used or it you know became um uh you know replaced with something newer um and you can find a good deal on it you can you know you can upgrade more ram later you can add another yeah, you know exactly. ssd drive or whatever you need to but yeah there's definitely ways you can get you know in the sub 1000 range for sure yeah well cool man this has been this has been educational, certainly for me. Um, and uh, yeah, this I think this, great. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you kind of sharing your experience too. I think, you know, I didn't know a lot about computational media. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been kind of neat to hear your experiences with that and then what you've gone on to do. And, and you know, just working with you in the past, I mean, you've always been a real hard worker, sharp. And uh, I knew you were going to do some bigger things once we left Shop Visible. And uh, <laughs> you have not disappointed, man. That's awesome. So. Well, thanks so much, Carlos, for your time. I appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you. All right, man. Well, uh, we'll have to do this again soon, and uh, you can give us maybe a demo on uh, on a game you're working on. That sounds good. All right, thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.